Eugene Peterson once wrote that when people come to church, they bring two questions with them. Is there a story and am I in it? Now, these are two really important questions to ponder, to consider, but they're probably not questions that we're consciously asking as we come to church, as we sit down in the chairs or the pews and, and we worship. They're not questions that maybe are on the forefront of our minds, but they are two questions that get us thinking about the power of story, the power of story to help us make sense of our lives and our place in this world, uh, the, the power of stories to help us live in this world and to understand who we are and what we're supposed to be doing on planet Earth. There's power in story. And there's this, this human longing that's embedded in our DNA into who we are, that we long for a story to live in. So back to Peterson's questions, is there a story? And am I in it? Now, some people will answer, well, no, there isn't a story. There's not any overarching meta-narrative story that we're a part of. And we, we can't have a story. There, this only story is that there is no story. Some people will respond to those questions in that way. Others will answer, well, I'm not sure. Maybe there is a story. Maybe there isn't. There's no way to really know. I'm not sure. But the answer that Christianity gives is that, yes, there is a story. There is a great story that we're a part of that's been written in the pages of history. And it's a story with a good be beginning and a really, really good ending. It's a story where something has gone wrong and caused us to be separated from what is good. But this story is not one where it's all doom and gloom because something's happened to set it all right. This is a story of rescue and redemption and hope for you, for me for everyone. And this is the reality that we're going to enter in today as we open up the Bible, as we enter into the story of God together. Not just today though, but over the next few months as we take time to look at the two greatest redemptive events of the Exodus and of Easter so that we can find our place in this great story of God once again or for the very first time. And so to do that, we're gonna start in a part of the Bible before Jesus called the Old Testament, and we're going to be in a book of the Bible called Exodus. You can find it's the second book in your Bible, and we're going to be immersing ourselves in this story, in this great redemptive event of the Old Testament, to prepare us for the greatest redemptive event of Easter. And we want to see and learn about God and who he is, about his people, about his activity in the world, and what all of that means for you and for me as we sit and listen and walk through this story together. And so to get us going in this new teaching series today, we're going to pick up the story of Exodus in the very first verse of the very first chapter of this story. This is what it says in verse 1 of Exodus 1. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. So the book of Exodus opens 
in Egypt. God's people have been led through a lot of twists and turns to arrive in Egypt, and now it's become their home, and it's going to be their home for some 400 years or so. This is the setting as we begin the book of Exodus, and the author, who many scholars believe is Moses, the great leader that we're going to meet next week, and as this essential character in the story of Exodus, they believe that Moses wrote this story of what happened in Egypt and beyond so that a new generation of people could know who they were and where they came from. That the people who Moses is writing to, they weren't there on the ground when the Exodus happened. They weren't there when God led them out of Egypt. They weren't there in all the different events that Exodus tells. They heard about it, but Moses wanted them to actually know it and experience it for themselves through this writing that became the book of Exodus. And so Exodus is kind of like that website online called Ancestry.com where you can find out your family history, places where your family uh, has come from, where you, what your heritage is, what, what kind of background you have. Essentially, Ancestry.com is a website that helps you know where your story started and who you are within that story. And that's what, that's what Exodus is like. It's, it's written to help the people of God who didn't get to live the Exodus for themselves know the mighty acts of God in history, know who they are, where they came from, and understand the story that they are living in. And for God's people, for Israel, the Exodus, the story that we're going to immerse ourselves in over the next few months was the defining moment in their history. It stood above and beyond all other moments in the story of their people. It was the saving act of God that overshadowed all other acts of God. It was the story of how Israel became a nation and a people with a cause and a purpose in the world to let the world know that there is a God and to shine that light into the world. See, what happens in Exodus is at the heart of who God's people are and who they are meant to be. So much so that one scholar actually described the importance of Exodus by saying what the cross of Jesus is to the Christian, the Exodus was to the Israelites. So to understand who we are and where we come from as God's people, we need to understand what happened in this great event called the Exodus because it's a story that is at the heart of who we are and it's a story that sets us up for the greatest exodus that happens at Easter. And it's a story that starts in Egypt, which means that before the rescue, before God reveals himself to his people, before the parting of the Red Sea, before the Ten Commandments, and before the glory of God fills the tabernacle and all the people of Israel see that with their own eyes, before all of that, there's Egypt. There's life in a foreign country called Egypt. And Exodus chapter one is gonna tell us about the experience of God's people in Egypt, which we see as, you, as, you, as we're gonna work our way through it is a mixture of both blessing and hardship. This is the reality before the rescue. This is the reality of life for Israel in Egypt. It's this mix of blessing and hardship. And the first experience of Israel in Egypt is one of blessing. Right at the beginning in verse 1, it gives us some background information about the names and the number of the people who came down and arrived in Egypt. And then we're told that God's people were fruitful, that they increased greatly, that they grew exceedingly strong, and the land became filled with God's people. What started with 70 people in one generation grows exponentially. Where Israel came to Egypt weak, now they're strong. 
Where there were few, now there are many. And Exodus isn't just recording this because it's, you know, to record it. Rather, Exodus wants us thinking of something more. It wants us to be looking back to the story of creation. See, Exodus, when it starts talking about what happened when Israel got into Egypt, it wants us thinking of what God was up to when he created the world. That's why you hear creation language being used in verse 7. It's purposeful. The author wants us to be looking back to the story of when God was speaking at the creation of the world, and he said this in Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. God speaks, and he says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So there's the creation of humankind. And then it says, and then God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So as God is fashioning the world, he had in mind a world full of image bearers, of people like you and me, people who carried the image and likeness of God in our very being that we would fill the earth, that we would represent him in the world, and that the whole world would be full of these image bearers of God. See, at creation, God saw fruitfulness and multiplication and the filling of the earth. And here in Egypt, we see it happening. We see what God envisioned at the beginning happening in history. We see it being lived out on the ground in Egypt. And so when we read verses Verse 7, we are meant to hear the echoes of creation and see the blessing of that creation mandate being lived out in the people of God. See, God is doing what he said he would do. His goals in creation haven't been thwarted. They haven't been stopped. They are continuing. They are growing. They are expanding. His creation vision is alive and well in his people as Exodus begins. And what we need to see is that the impressive in the exponential growth of God's people is a sign of God's presence and his blessing on his people. It's a sign of God's activity in the world. That's what Exodus wants us to see as it opens, that blessing is the first experience of God's people in Egypt. And that God is about to do a new thing in the world, just like he did a new thing at creation. But strangely, It's the blessing of God that creates the second experience of God's people in Egypt, which we see unfold next in verse 8. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service, in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. So in just a few short verses, we see Israel go from peace to chaos, from favor to disgrace, from having an agreement to live freely in Egypt with the previous king to becoming slaves under this new king. It's this massive shift in their situation and their circumstances, and it's orchestrated orchestrated by the new king, 
who has just risen to Egypt's throne. And now as this king, he looks out over this land, he looks out at all the people that are there from his new throne and he doesn't like what he sees. He sees the sheer and the vast number of the Israelites living in his borders and you know what? He starts to feel threatened. His power, his authority, his throne, his nation, it's all threatened by this massive and exponential growth of this people who are living inside his borders and when powerful people begin to feel threatened, sadly they will go to great lengths to keep their power, which is what we see happen here as the new king decides to deal with this new Israelite problem. So he comes up with this three-step plan to diminish this threat and can start controlling the growth of God's people. He feels like he's losing control and so he tries to grab it back with a three-step plan. And his plan starts with step one, which is make them slaves. See, when Israel arrived in Egypt, they were given the freedom to be shepherds and farmers. They could be hired by Egyptians to, to watch over their flocks, to, to care for their sheep, to, to, to farm. And they had lived that way for most of their time up to this point in Egypt. But now they're being forced into slave labor. Their situation has changed. They've gone from shepherding and farming to grueling, hard labor under the watchful eye of slave masters. They are forced to make bricks and work in fields, to build entire cities to support the one who put them into slavery. And they have no choice. They have no say in this. They are forced into this. They are made to do this. They were shepherds and now they're slaves. That's step one in his plan. Step two is to work them to exhaustion. Verse 13 says, They ruthlessly made the Israelites work as slaves that they made their lives bitter with hard work, that he afflicted them with hard burdens. So the daily experience of God's people was endless, grueling work with no regard to their well-being. If they die, that's no big deal because that's the goal anyway. They want to lessen the power and the strength and the size of Israel. They want to break the spirits of this nation living inside their borders. See, Egypt is out to work them to the bone until they cannot work anymore. That's a part of their plan. Make them slaves. Work them to exhaustion. That's the initial thrust of this new plan by the new king. But the problem is, is it doesn't work. It doesn't work. As the persecution and the oppression rises, so did the population. Years go by, and there's no decline in the population of Israel. Over time, the greater the oppression, the greater the growth. And the only explanation is that God is behind this. That God is at work to fulfill his creation mandates, to see his people be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, to represent him to the world. That's the only explanation for why they keep growing. Which is beautiful and, and interesting, but that doesn't really help you if you're a slave. It just doesn't. So you have to imagine that the life of slavery and oppression was horrible. It was endless. It just kept going and going and going. And it would, it would have been horrible to endure. It would have been a horrible way to live your life. And you can't help but think that an Israelite slave wouldn't be impressed by the reality that the population was growing, but God wasn't doing anything about them being slaves, that he wasn't setting them free. See, I imagine that if I was a slave working in those store cities, if I was making those bricks of straw, what I would want more than anything is to be rescued, to be set free from slavery and to be taken out from under the oppression of the Egyptians. 
I would want God to make that happen, to not let it continue. But God isn't doing that. Yes, he's bringing blessing by increasing the population, but he's not, set, he's not rescuing them. This is the experience of God's people in Egypt. They were afflicted with heavy burdens. They were oppressed. They were ruthlessly made to work without ceasing. Blessing has become hardship, and there's no end in sight. It just keeps going and going and going. It's like a marathon race that you're in, and you just are tired, and you can't seem to keep going, and you think that just around the bend is going to be the finish line. But when you get around the end, oh, well, guess what? There's still a lot of race to go. And I've never ran in a marathon race, but that experience in life is difficult. And that's what, that's what Israel is experiencing. Blessing has become hardship. And just when you think it couldn't get any worse, it does. Verse 15. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shipra and the other Pua, when you serve as a midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt, with, dealt well with the midwives and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. So in step one, God, the Pharaoh's plan was to make God's people slaves. In step two, it was to work them to exhaustion and break their spirits. And then in step three, his plan was to kill the kids. And it's hard to read this as a dad, especially of two boys, to know that there was an edict handed down from the most powerful person in the nation that if you had a, a baby boy, that they were to be murdered. To think that someone would go to these lengths to hold on to power, to have control, to implement that kind of plan is, is heinous. But that's what the Pharaoh does. First, he asks the Israelite midwives to kill the baby boys when they're born. And when they fear God and they say, we're not going to do that, he steps it up a notch and he commands the entire nation of Israel, his people, to throw those babies into the Nile. It's genocide. It's trying to kill a people by killing their children. It's ugly. It's horrible. It's a, it's a really dark moment that we have just encountered. But oftentimes in the darkness, there's always a glimmer of goodness. There's always a glimmer of hope. There's always a glimmer of light. And we see that with these two Israelite midwives, Shipra and Pua. I mean, of all the different Israelites that have been in this story, the numerous numbers of Israelites in Egypt, God singles out these two women who take their stand against the most powerful person in Egypt and say, no way, we will not do this. We will not do this thing that you commanded us. See, they, they, they choose to fear God instead of fearing Pharaoh. They choose to honor God, to please God by their actions, to do what is right over what is wrong. These, women's, these women are heroes. They are faithful. They are courageous. They are defiant in the face of a great threat. And I love this about them. I love this. They are heroes in this story. They are the heroes, in my opinion, of chapter one. And what it reveals to us is that even in the midst of evil, there can be glimmers of goodness. 
that even in the middle of incredible hardship, there can be hope. And you know what? That's how chapter one ends. That's how it ends. There's no resolution to the slavery. There's no resolution to the oppression. Um, we're just left hanging as the chapter ends. This is the reality before the rescue. God's people are in Egypt. They are experiencing this mix of blessing and hardship with the hardship overshadowing the blessing. And as the chapter ends, it doesn't really feel that hopeful now, does it? See, there's no hint that God is going to show up and do something. There's no hint that this is going to ever change. And I mean, God himself is barely mentioned in chapter 1. If you just read through it again, verse 17 is the first time he's mentioned and verse 20 is the first time that he acts in any kind of noticeable way. But even those things are overshadowed by the hardship that is inflicted upon God's people, by the slavery, by the working them to exhaustion, by the command to kill the kids. But even though it's overshadowed, God is acting, just not in the way we would expect him to given the reality of life for Israel in Egypt. Right? Because instead of reaching down into the situation of slavery and genocide, God reaches into the lives of two midwives to bless them with children, which is a beautiful thing and a thing to celebrate and honor. And it reveals the kind of God we have that he would do that in response to their faithfulness, but it doesn't feel enough, does it? There's this tension that Exodus 1 leaves us with. It leaves us wanting God to do more, asking God for, to do more, crying out for God to do more, more because he feels strangely absent, distant, uninvolved as we arrive at the end of chapter 1. But he's there. You just have to look for him in the story. You just have to look for his activity and his hand in what is happening. And if you, if you, if you do look, you will find him. You'll find that one sliver of hope in the middle of all the hardship. And the question is, where is that sliver of hope in Exodus chapter 1? We've already referenced it, but the answer is, is the growth of God's people despite the opposition and the oppression. As you've already said, that is a sign of God's blessing, that God is behind this, this growth. It's not normal growth. This is not something that just happens naturally. It's dynamic growth. It's divinely produced growth. You see, God is at work behind the scenes fulfilling the decrees he made when he created the world. He's at work fulfill, fulfilling the promises that he made to Israel's ancestors. And if you trace that story back to the place where some of these promises began to be made, one of the most significant ones is when God is speaking with a man named Abram in Genesis chapter 12. Listen to what he says to Abram there. Genesis 12 verse 1 says, The Lord had said to Abraham, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household, the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. See, God is making a promise to Abram that he is now beginning to keep in Egypt. He's at work. He's creating a people. He's blessing Abraham with many descendants, as many as could be counted, more than could be counted. He's at work. It's just harder to see underneath the story that Exodus 1 lays out. God's blessing is here. His presence and activity is here. We just have to look for it. And you know, that's what life can be like in Egypt. See, when life is hard, when circumstances don't go our way, 
When we are confronted by the reality that control is nothing more than an illusion, we can't seem to find God and we have no sense of what he's up to, no sense of what he's doing or where this all might lead, we are invited to look for God in the rubble. We are invited to look for God in that space that we're in. And we have to look through the eyes of faith to find him and to find that glimmer of goodness in that really hard moment. And you know, that's the thing about faith is that faith um, is about more than a one-time event where you and I say yes to Jesus. And it's about more than assenting to a set of beliefs or following a set of religious rituals. It's not about any of those things. Rather, faith is believing that God is who he says he is and that he will keep every promise that he's ever made. Faith is having a confidence in something that you cannot see but you believe to be true. And it's a way of looking at life through the lens of who God is and what God has done, who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. Let me illustrate what I mean by, by this with two short stories out of the life of Jesus. See, if we believe that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, then the same God who is at work behind the scenes in Exodus is the same God we read in the Gospels, in the New Testament, the stories of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And, and there are two short stories in the life of Jesus that I want to share with you to help us see through the eyes of faith once again. The first story is in Matthew 17. There a man comes to Jesus and he asks Jesus to help his son who's having seizures. The seizures are so bad that he's fallen, his son's fallen into the fire and been burned and almost drowned. Nobody can help his son. And as a last ditch effort, this man brings him to Jesus and you know what? Jesus heals him. It's an incredible story, but it's what Jesus says to his disciples that's really important after this. He says in verse 20, Truly I tell you, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. See, you might have a mountain in your way. You may have an obstacle blocking your path to something better. You may be struggling or suffering, or God may be asking you to take the next hill with him, and, and that means a mountain has to move in your life. But according to Jesus, no matter how big that thing is in front of you, he says that if you will trust him, you can move that mountain, even if your faith is small or weak. See, the reality is that it's not how much faith you have, it's what your faith in, faith is in that matters. And when your faith is in someone who's bigger than the mountain, Jesus, God, the creator of heaven and earth, nothing is impossible for you. When your faith is in a God who is able to do immeasurably more than you could ask or imagine, nothing is too strong or too big. Even if your faith is just a tiny little seed, Jesus says your mountain can move when your trust is in him. It's not how much faith you have. It's what your faith is in that truly matters. That's the first story. The second story is in Luke chapter 8. Listen to this. As Jesus went on his way, the crowds almost crushed him. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years, but no one could heal her. She came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak, and immediately her bleeding stopped. Who touched me? Jesus asked. When they all denied it, Peter said, Master, the people are crowding and pressing against you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me. I know the power has gone out from me. Then the woman, seeing that she could not go unnoticed, came trembling and fell at his feet. In the presence of all the people, she told why she had touched him and how she had been instantly healed. Then he said to her daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. See, I love this story because all it took for this woman to find what she needed was to touch the edge of Jesus' cloak. It wasn't much, 
but the slightest contact with Jesus made all the difference. I think sometimes we think that we have to have all this faith and that we have to have everything figured out, but what we see here in this story blows that up is that it, it confronts us with the reality that hanging by a thread is all you need when that thread is attached to Jesus. Jesus is that strong, he is that good, that all you need is to have one thread in your hand to make it through. And some of us are in the same position as that woman. We need something to change in our life and when all else hasn't come through, we're reaching out for something to help us. And I wanna remind you that when your life is hard and your faith is wavering, when you're stressed, when you're anxious, when you're experiencing doubt, when you're hanging by a thread, all you need is that thread to be attached to Jesus. That's it. You know, for Israel, their faith likely had taken a beating as they experienced their life in Egypt, as they lived as slaves. They were likely hanging by a thread because all the odds were stacked against them. They had to experience this reality before they got to their rescue. And if we look at Exodus chapter one, Exodus chapter one is screaming out to us, look at this situation God's people are in. Look at all the forces aligned against them. And then the rest of Exodus is saying, look at the God who rescues his people. Look at the lengths he'll go to for the ones that he loves before the rescue is the reality. It's true for Israel and Egypt and it's true for us too. And while we might not be in exile or living as slaves in a foreign country, we do feel heavy burdens. We do taste the bitterness of life. We do exist in difficult circumstances where God feels absent and it's hard to find him. See, when we find ourselves in our own Egypt-like situation, we're going to need to look through the eyes of faith and to find that one thread of hope in the middle of all that is hard. We're going to have to exercise faith. And to help us do that, I wanna give us three questions to help you navigate the reality before the rescue. The first question is this, who is God? Who is God? See, sometimes we just need to slow down and reflect on the God who is in Egypt and is the God who brings us into the promised land. We need to slow down, we need to ponder him, consider him, get our eyes on him. And a great way to start doing that today and this week is to just open up the Bible and sit in a passage like Exodus 34, six to seven. Just read it, let it wash over you, reflect on who God is and see how that makes a difference in your perspective. So who is God? Secondly, what has God done? See, we need to think about and immerse ourselves in what Jesus has done. We need to think about the message of rescue and salvation found in Jesus that everyone is invited to be a part of to make their story too. And a great way to, to immerse yourself and think about what God has done in Jesus is to go to a letter in the Bible called Ephesians. Read through chapters, chapter 2, verse 1 to 10. Listen to what God has done, how rich in mercy he is, how his loving kindness drove him to make us alive in Jesus. Reflect in those realities that by grace we have been saved through faith, that we are God's workmanship, that we have been raised with Christ. These realities about what God has done in Jesus, let that wash over you and sink into your heart this week. Who is God? What has God done? And finally, where are the glimmers of God's goodness in my life? See, sometimes we need to slow down and look. We need to think. We need to, to find the glimmers of God's goodness in our lives because when, when all we see is hardship, when all we see is darkness, it, we need to stop and find the light. And so where can you, where can you see God's, God's goodness in your life? Is it in, 
your family? Is it in your work? Is it in something that God's provided? Is it something unexpected, a kind text? Like where are those areas of your life where the glimmers of God's goodness have arrived and you just haven't noticed? Because they're there. It might only be a glimmer, just like it was only a glimmer here in Exodus 1, but it's there. And if you ask these questions and you immerse yourself in them, it can show you that God is present, that he is active, that he is alive, and that he is with you even when you can't see it or feel it like the Israelites did in Egypt. That's the reality before the rescue. That's how we engage with the reality that we're in before God brings the rescue that we desire. And as the story of Exodus unfolds, what we're gonna see is that rescue is coming. God will lead us out, lead his people out of Egypt, just like he will lead us out of our personal Egypts. But until then, we have to live in the reality that is before the rescue comes. And today, I hope that what you see is that God is present, he is active, and that there is glimmers of goodness, even when you can't see it or feel it. That's the God of Exodus. That's the story that we're a part of.